Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockrell. And we're live on tape from Dublin. We are on the second part of looking at that most famous and magical of Beatle dates. Yes, say it with me. August the 23rd. August the 23rd. August the 23rd. Sorry, there's a delay. Yes. And uh, August the 23rd, we've reached 1963. What day is it? It is Friday, August the 23rd. There's and a pattern here. Yes, that seems to just move forward. And um, this is a monumental day. She Loves You Does is she? released in the UK. Need we say more, it says here. We probably don't need to say more. I mean, we could do two or three episodes on on this song at all. But the release of She Loves You turns the Beatles from a successful pop combo, which they have been in the first half of 1963 with, um, you know, their first number one hit singles. And they are number one in the album charts on the 23rd of August 1963 with their debut album, Please Please Me. But the release of She Loves You is arguably the moment where it tips over into a cultural phenomenon of significance. Yes, they become a completely different thing at this point. Mm. I think this is the song that I associate with the Beatles. You know, so even though they have another few years still to go in their career, uh, this is the song. If I think Beatles, I automatically default to She Loves You. I think everything about the Beatles, the early Beatles, the Beatle mania, the teen sensation hysteria is in this song to the extent that I sometimes I I get confused as to whether it came out before or after I want to hold your hand you know because I (laughs) I I actually actually think this is probably a better song and to me this is what kickstarts Beatlemania and I want to hold your hand that's the American thing Yes, there's a a different perspective, a different cultural perspective yeah. as to where you come from this. And yeah, I want to hold your hand kind of has this, uh, and we've done an episode and I want to hold your hand. Or uh, two. Yeah, or um, the, it has this uh, very particular status as the song that kicks down the American door. But the previous single, She Loves You, which is their fourth single to date, and they've signed a deal for two albums and four singles a year. Um, it's their fourth single to date, their third single of 1963. Um, this is the one that turns them into a fully-fledged cultural phenomenon and is the gateway between them being a a band who we just remember fondly to a band who have about 17 podcasts (laughs) at the minute. Yeah. Uh, Um, So it sells over 1.3 million and it is the biggest selling single of all time. 
1977. Yeah, what song take it? Like, I, it's I the biggest remember, song single of all time remember, until, I'm just going to have to look this up, oh, yeah, until Mull of Kintyre knocks it off the top spot and becomes the biggest selling single of all time. Which is the better song, do you think? She Loves You or Mull of Kintyre? I'm not even going to answer that question. It is Mull of Kintyre, isn't it? No. No. Okay, fine. Um, and then that's superseded by uh, Do They Know It's Christmas in 84 and then superseded again by... Candle in the Wind, 1987, Elton John, sad version. But She Loves You is still in the top uh, five biggest selling singles in the UK of all time. And as you said, it is the biggest selling single of the 1960s. And it stays in the charts for about six months or so. Yes. So th- this is a this is a weird phenomenon with Beatles singles that they kind of hang around. Mm. So they get to number one, stay there for a while, they drop down, but they, they sort of loiter. Yes. And the thing we need to remember in the background is, you know, as I said, the Please Please Me album is number one. And the Beatles are kind of having back to back number one albums from this point onwards in the UK for the better part of two years. There's one or two minor interruptions. Um, They are number one in the album charts from, you know, 63 to 65. Yeah. Take that South Pacific. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But that's what they're taking over from, these kind of show tune albums, these kind of people would buy an LP to get the full show, to get the full experience. But the Beatles are an albums band from the get-go. From the get-go, yeah. So, um, yes, the statistics there says in the British Top 20 from August of 1963 through to February of 1964, four weeks at the top, uh, seven further weeks in the top three, and then just for good measure, another two weeks at number one. So the Beatles are working with George Martin and George Martin is giving them the permission or he is delighted with the fact that they are able to write their own hits. Um, The previous uh, single, From Me To You, the Beatles' shortest single, it's top of the charts. They need another song for their next single and they think they have a song for their scheduled recording session on the 1st of July 1963, which Mm -hmm. is... I'll get you. I'll get you. Was no. <laughs> they thought that was going to be their next A side. Yeah, that's not an A side. It's barely a B side. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's very strange it, that that should even have been well, in the running. It's it's this thing again. Something we've mentioned before, which is the Beatles did not really have a copious bag full of songs. This this legend that, you know, they, they rocked up onto the scene with a songbook of a hundred songs. Not really. There's a couple of versions of Thinking of Linking or whatever. Yeah. But they were, you know, we, we, we now know that almost everything was being recorded as it was written. Not necessarily written to order, but they were they were working in real time, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, they have this date scheduled for recording on the 1st July. They think... I'll Get You is going to be the song. But then something strikes. They end up in a van in Newcastle. And magical things can happen in a van in Newcastle, I've been told. Well, I'll take your word for that. But uh, yeah, so back in, in 1963, Paul says, we were in a van up in Newcastle somewhere and we'd just gone over to our hotel. I originally got the idea of doing one of those answering songs where a couple of us singing, uh, like She Loves You, and the other one says, yes, yes, bit, you know, yeah, yeah, answering whoever is saying it. But we decided that was a crummy idea. But we had the idea of writing a song called She Loves You Then, and we just sat in the hotel bedroom for a few hours and wrote it. And that is such a sort of prosaic description. It's just, yeah, we just sat down. We thought, yeah, we'll... Well, you know, the, the Beatles talk about how their early singles, you know, w- relied heavily on the personal pronouns. Yeah. Please, please me, from me to you. And then this is the next in the series of She Loves You. But what you can kind of see in a song like She Loves You is, and maybe it's a, a Paul kind of 
tack, which is, okay, well, what does a song like She Loves You mean? Oh, well, it's going to have to be reportage, isn't it? And so they kind of pull that thread and the song kind of comes out of that. I think that's it. And they are constantly moving forward. So as you say, to the extent that they have songs written, they don't use them unless they're absolutely stuck. Mm. Uh, You know, Beatles for Sale has a few. But um, so they are driving forward. And it is this notion that Paul is the one who can hear the song in his head and takes a much more considered approach. What is the song going to be? What is it going to sound like? Uh, and, And it's this idea, they're still in that period of sort of sitting on hotel bedrooms, looking at each other, eyeball to eyeball, that Paul likes to say, and they come up with the song. Well, it's 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 that storytelling thing, which, you know, we saw in Peter Jackson's Get Back when he's writing uh, The Long and Winding Road. Yes. He goes, and now verse two, the weather obstacle. Yes, <laughs> he talks yes. about, you know, the long and windy nights and all that kind of stuff. Um, Cynthia Lennon thinks, though, that the inspiration comes a little bit earlier. Yeah, she thinks she's the inspiration. This this. I, I, it's her first wedding anniversary, after all. It is her first wedding anniversary. So, you know, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. That's absolutely right. I, I'm, I changed my mind, and this is absolutely true. So in, in her 2005 book, John, because she's written a few, mm-hmm. um, she recalls an event in 1958, and she says, John was also a romantic. A side of him I saw more often as our relationship deepened. He wrote love poems on scraps of paper and passed them to me at college. For our first Christmas, he drew a card with, a picture of me in my new shaggy coat standing opposite him, our heads together, his hand on my arm. It was covered with kisses and hearts. And he wrote, quote, our first Christmas, I love you. Yes, yes, yes. A few years later, he used the same idea in one of the Beatles' first hits. First hits. Uh, <laughs> she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case you missed the connection. Oh, I see what she's done there. Um, but John says in 1963, we wrote it two days before we recorded it, um, which is might be a bit of an exaggeration, but um, it does seem to have been finished off um, in Fortland Road, Paul's house, yep. on the June 27th, 1963. And then they show it to George Martin. George Martin goes, yes, that's a good song. That'll do. <laughs> that seems like it's fine. Um, they are once again, though, in this position that um, the song doesn't get lined up for a release in the US. And, you know, this is a weird thing, isn't it? Not that, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've proven themselves in the UK. They've number one album, number one singles, and that Capital are still so, you know, totally immune, totally withering in not wanting to put out She Loves You as a single. It is very strange. And it is tempting to wonder what would have happened if Capital had got behind you know, would this be the song they were performing on Ed Sullivan, you know, yeah. you know six months earlier than they actually break through? Um, is this a quintessentially English-British song that wouldn't resonate with the Americans? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I do think that this is a better song that lands better with me than I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah, yeah no, I think I'd prefer it to I Want to Hold Your Hand as well. Um, there's this kind of notion that, you know, the word yeah is an Americanism. Mm. And, you, you know, it, it, it existed before this song, but it certainly popularised, you know, the phrase, uh, you know, yeah. It, yeah. it seems odd to believe that there was a time when people were not saying yeah. No, you, everybody says it. Every, I've heard, I heard someone saying it earlier on. Just in the street. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it, it is very odd that this, uh, that Capital are rejecting this. So you would think logically it would go to VJ Records, who had released uh, the, the first singles in America that did 
nothing very much. But uh, they had been a little remiss in making the royalty payments, mm. uh, not to mention that they were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. So they have to shop around for another American record label that, that might be interested. And uh, DECA, you think DECA would know by now? DECA decline it, <laughs> RCA decline it, Columbia uh, say no, but Philadelphia-based Swan Records agree, and uh, they they will release it in September '63. Uh, and it's a minor success. It's a minor success, and the fact that the early songs come out on different labels in America is one of the reasons why suddenly they will occupy the top five spots because uh, in the American singles charts because these other labels then suddenly think oh we can we can we still have the license we still have the license we can, we can put this out again um, because of the, the issues with VJ Swan are only given permission to release the songs as a single for two years so it's a limited uh, period and uh, you know I, I have been to America once and twice and once or twice and I've looked in record shops and I've never been able to find a copy of this and it says on the label the words don't drop out ah we should never drop out <laughs> which is a nice encouragement to for people to uh, stay in school stay in school stay in school kids yeah we endorse this message. Yeah, I guess so. We should put it on our podcast. But as you say, you know, this is licensed to Swan Records. So when Swan Records folds, She Loves You kind of stops existing as an official US single. Absolutely. And uh, Capital had put it on the Beatles' second album. And uh, that was good enough. Yeah, it still lives there. Yeah. Um, the thing I find interesting is that um, they are playing the song before it comes out. And that, that that's not really a... Uh, an expected thing uh, at the time. Certainly in the no. 60s and 70s, a single would be released and it would often be released to radio roughly at the same time. And, you know, you'd work it up the charts and then you get into the 80s and 90s, you know, singles would come out weeks in advance to airplay yeah. and then they'd kind of hit the charts big. But the Beatles are playing this song on the radio live before the August 23rd release date. Yeah. So if you were tuned to Pop Go the Beatles on the 13th of August 1963, you would have heard a live rendition of this song. And that is a version I've heard and it's remarkably faithful to the record. So you kind of have to imagine here is a band with number one singles, number one album in the country. They've got their own radio show and 10 days before the single comes out, they're blasting this thing out. Out, out, out of the speakers of national radio. And of course, it becomes the biggest selling single of all time. They're ramping it up. They actually, Epstein is playing a blinder. They're yep. ramping up the pre-release excitement for this single. It's a marketing campaign and it works spectacularly well. Yeah. Um, they also play it live. So they're playing the Goldman Cinema in Bournemouth. Uh, they're doing a six night residency, two shows a night uh, with support from Tommy Quickly and Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. And uh, they're playing She Loves You in the set list every night. So they're lighting the She Loves You fire. Yeah. And this is, I suppose, as we said, just absolute peak Beatlemania. Yeah. And it is the uh, the gig that they are playing on the night of August the 23rd itself. They are playing at the Gaumont Cinema in Bournemouth. It uh, turned back into a cinema and finally closed in 2017 after a screening of La La Land. 
there you go. Um, the building, though, hasn't been um, torn down and uh, it's kind of a apparently a local uh, planning application for apartments and regeneration. Right, and all so that we can stuff. still go and look at it if you want. We can still, still go and look for it. It's still there. It's still, it is still there. I did look at it on Google Maps and, you know, eventually found it. It's a bit sad, but yeah. it's one of these kind of classic kind of 1950s kind of cinema buildings. But that's where they were playing on August the 23rd. And um, they also celebrated Billy J. Kramer's birthday that week. Oh, that's and, and John's wedding anniversary. And John's first wedding anniversary. But August the 23rd, 1963 is the release date of She Loves You. That's a pretty significant date. That's a very significant date. That's a very significant date. Let's wind the clock forward 365 days. Uh, actually, 366 days, because 1964 was a leap year. And August the 23rd is a Sunday. And... They have gone from playing Bournemouth in 1963. Where are they playing on August the 23rd, 1964? The Hollywood Bowl. Now, that's a leap. That is a leap. Second wedding anniversary, Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. Um, We all know about the Hollywood Bowl, don't we? We do. So, 1965. No, 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 no. no. Um, This this is quite an apex, you know, to, to, to think 12 months earlier, they cannot get their single simultaneously released in the US that they're begging around for yeah. scraps and August the 23rd 1964 they are headlining the Hollywood Bowl it, it it's hard to fathom where their heads might have been at it really is you think that the speed of change and this period this 63 64 65 those touring years the speed of change is phenomenal so as you say you know the Hollywood Bowl it's not the biggest concert they'll ever play it's not the most money they'll ever make but there's something iconic about the venue. It is iconic. It's a good stage. It's, you know, John says it's got a good acoustics. It's got a good sound. And it, it has a, an 18,700 capacity and all tickets are sold out in April 64. So, you know, within weeks of Ed Sullivan, yeah. they're selling out the Hollywood Bowl and they're doing a 12-song set list. Yes, it occurred to me 12 songs is the number of songs that appears uh, that appear on uh, US albums. So it's they're just giving people the length of an album. Um, and they took to the stage at 9.30 that night, August the 23rd, and they performed Twist and Shout, You Can't Do That, All My Loving, She Loves You, Things We Said Today, Roll Over Beethoven, Can't Buy Me Love, If I Fell, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Boys, A Hard Day's Night, and Long Tall Sally. And they were finished by 9.45. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, but the famous thing about the Hollywood Bowl, and one of the reasons it lives on, is that it was recorded. Yes. And it was a great recording. It was not a great recording. Oh, dear. I mean, I remember when this record came out. This is one of, this is the first Beatles record I ever bought on the day of release. You know, as it, well, maybe not on the day of release, but as it was released, you know, because you bang up all, all of the sort of back catalogue and then suddenly in 1977, the Hollywood Bowl comes, comes out. out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, George Martin was tasked in, in 1977 with putting this together, but he talks about the, uh, in the recording sessions book, Mark Lewis and, uh, interviews him, and he said, we recorded it on three-track tape, which was the standard U.S. format. Why three-track? People get three years. What? what? Yeah, well, uh, three-track tape, yeah, I don't really understand why, you know, particularly as there's these parallel stories that say, oh, U.S. recording studios were far much more advanced than 
uh, UK recording studios. Mm. And we know they got eight track and, and, those, and 16 track before UK studios became standardized with those. So I don't know. Does he mean it's a, it's a standard format for live recording? It, I, don't, I don't know. I'm I not don't, a, a, an audio historian. I don't know. But he says you would record the band in stereo on two tracks and keep the voice separated on the third so that you could bring it up or down in the mix. But at the Hollywood Bowl, they didn't use three track in quite the right way. I didn't have too much say in these things because I was a foreigner, but they did some very bizarre mixing. In 1977, when I was asked to make an album from the tapes, I found guitars and voices mixed on the same track. And the recording seemed to concentrate more on the wild screaming of 18,700 kids than on the Beatles on stage. And that does come across. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we're now starting in the long history of Beatles Incorporated releasing things maybe that, uh, you know, do do people want them? Should they not be want? Are they releasing the unreleasable? Who knows? Who knows? Um, but I, I love this album when it came out. No, I think I think I think it came out, obviously the, the, the Beatles, it comes out in the slipstream of the Beatles contract expiring in 1976 yeah. with, um, with EMI. So EMI didn't really have to run things past uh, the four of them uh, anymore if they wanted to release products. So they were able to put out some compilations and they were able to put out the Hollywood Bowl Mm -hmm. uh, record. And the notion was back in 1964 was that it would come out in 1964. It wasn't intended to sit on the shelves. And the thing that the Hollywood Bowl, the album has, is actually they went back to the Hollywood Bowl in 65. It's not all the 1964 tapes. No. Uh, So it's a composite from the the, the two shows, uh, the two years. But the idea of having a live album had been around from the very earliest visit to the US. So George Martin wanted to record the Carnegie Hall concerts uh, on the 12th of February 1964 during that first visit, but Capitol were fine with this, but he couldn't get permission from the American Federation of Musicians. God damn it. That's so annoying that we don't have a recording of that. But George Martin also wanted to record in the cavern back at the very start as well, didn't he? So, So there is this idea that George Martin, he knows the power of this band as a a live act. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you, American Federation of Musicians. No, they ruin everything. But, you know, you can't argue with success. And, you know, a live album is the a quick thing, a quick money-making scheme. So they agreed to record this concert on the 23rd of August, um, you know, 1964. But it just doesn't, uh, it just doesn't really work. It's just not done right. Yeah. And uh, there's a chap, Capital producer called Voile Gilmore and he says you know it was recorded on three track machines with half inch tape the Hollywood Bowl had a pretty good stereo sound system we plugged our mics right in there I didn't do an awful lot there wasn't much we could do I kept thinking maybe we'll get permission to release the tapes I took them back to the studio worked on it a while I edited the applause down EQ'd it a bit and he says the Beatles heard it they all wanted tape copies I had five or six copies made and sent sent over that's where the bootlegs must have come from and uh, we have a system at Capital. We knew where all our copies were. The Beatles said they liked the tapes. It sounded pretty good. They, they were surprised, but they still didn't want to uh, release it. Yeah. Um, so from the 1964 gig, uh, the, the versions that end up on the 77 album, the songs are Things We Said Today, Roll Over Beethoven, Boys, All My Loving, She Loves You, and Long Tall Sally. And a little excerpt of Twist and Shout is on the 64 documentary, uh, The Beatles Story album. Have you ever heard that album? No. It's in, you've got the US... Box, um, I box. do not. <laughs> well, it is in there. This is an album that I picked up thinking, uh, you know, in the early 70s or mid 70s, uh, there was a record store in Bangor where I lived that had American 
there. And it's there's virtually no music on it at all. It's one of those sort of, it's a scam, basically. Right, yes. You know, you get little kind of 10-second excerpts of songs, and it's mostly just, uh, and then the Beatles did this. You know, it's not very good. But eventually, uh, they do go back in 65, and they play another set list with Twist and Shout, She's a Woman, I Feel Fine, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Ticket to Ride, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Can't Buy Me Love, Babies in Black, I Want to Be Your Man, A Hard Day's Night, Help, and I'm Down. And But it's not like they learned from their 1964 mistakes because what's interesting is that George Martin seems to review the tapes pretty quickly in 1964 decides we're not going to do anything with this we better go back if we get the opportunity they do 1965 recordings but they're not really haven't no they haven't made any improvements no they haven't uh, they haven't really done much uh, to improve the recording Uh, I mean to the extent that uh, they gave the tapes to Phil Spector yeah, like that. Like this is this is in 1971. Phil Spector has handed these tapes, still hanging around. Do we know? Well, I, I assume Alan Klein is thinking. Well, I got you know, I've got to get another advance. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to make some more money. Do we know anything about what Phil did to the tapes? Because no. if, if those tapes don't need anything, it's echo. It's it's definitely not. I think uh, you suspect Phil listened to them and thought, there's nothing I can do here. Yeah. Um, y- you know, it is so not a Phil Spector project. But once 1977 rolls around, Voyle Gilmore gets a call from Capital. Do, does he know where the tapes is? And he, he says, I knew exactly where they were. They wanted to get permission to put them out. And I thought it would be useful if George Martin was involved since he knew the boys and made all their other records. So the Capital president at the time, Bashkar Menon, gives George Martin the tapes and says, go away and work some magic. So George calls Jeff Emmerich. Of course. Good old Jeff. Dream team. Dream team. Uh, and they start in January 1977. So what do they do exactly? Yeah, well, he, he says, George Martin says, you know, as far as I could remember, the original tapes had a rotten sound. So I said to Pascar, I don't think you've got anything there. There have been an awful lot of bootleg recordings. But when I listened to the Hollywood World tapes, I was amazed at the rawness and vitality of the Beatles singing. This is the spin. This is the spin. <laughs> so I told Bascar that I would see if I could bring the tapes into line with today's recordings. I enlisted the technical expertise of Jeff Emmerich and we transferred the recordings from three track to 24 track tapes. There were 22 songs and we whittled these down to 13. Some tracks had to be discarded because the music was obliterated by the screams. And, you know, there's a lot of that style of sleeve note on the album mm-hmm. uh, in 1977 it's like yes they're screaming but we left the screaming if you want to know what the Beatles were about if you want to know what Beatlemania was about this is all part of the experience so the songs that they choose from 65 are Ticket to Ride Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Help from the 29th of August and Twist and Shout She's a Woman Bit of Dizzy Miss Lizzie Can't Buy Me Love on Hard Day's Night um, Dizzy Miss Lizzie being a composite uh, from the 30th. I've, I've listened to it recently. I can't hear the join. <laughs> That's an Eric Morecambe, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, uh, and it, it comes out in 1977. And in some ways, it might be a good time for it to come out because short, punchy, loud music is yeah. the, the, the theme of the day. And it's reasonably well received. It is, it is reasonably well received. And I remember it being a big hit. And... Uh, I bought it. I bought it on cassette tape and listened to it on a little tiny cassette player, which is, you know, probably mimicked a transistor radio and drove my parents nuts. <laughs> I remember being on holiday and listening to this in the back of the car while playing this. Uh, my parents were very patient. You know, it's uh, Rob Sheffield says it's a loving tribute to the screaming girl fans who drown out the band in these 64, 65 shows. So it's definitely a, a document of its time, you know. 
I think so. And, you know, all music will say this is the official record of Beatlemania in full cry. And I think that's as good a description as any. You know, I was very excited when I heard they're going to release an expanded version of this as part of the uh, Eight Days a Week. And what do you think of that? <sighs> no, I, I don't like it at all. Yeah. And again, it's maybe this point. I know I'm constantly doing Diane Giles Martin. He's never going to come on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I think, uh, well, you're not going to come on this podcast. Uh, I got Curtis Staggers on the phone. It's probably a case of having grown up and being slightly obsessed with the original album. Yeah. And uh, it's it certainly cleaned up. I think the weird thing they did was they sort of tacked the songs on to the end instead of trying to incorporate them into the into the running order. So there were some, some additional yes, songs. Yes, yes. And I thought that was very strange. And the point that we've touched on when we talked about Revolver is I think it's the perhaps it's inherent in the demixing technology that they applied as part of that. that the harshness of it. There's a, there's a brittle quality or a harshness. Yeah, I think, I, I think uh, you know, uh, Live at the Hollywood Bowl, when it comes out, is a number one album in mm. the UK. It is a big deal. It's a big seller. And then it disappears off the catalogue, never appears on CD and is quietly deleted. And it's sort of this odd runt of the litter album that hangs around for years. And I, I think it probably deserved a straight reissue Yes, with the same cover. And tying it in into eight days a week, which is, I think, an unsatisfactory documentary yeah. in a way. Uh, you know, it's certainly not what Get Back was. You know, Get no. Back is a, a sensational piece of work. Whereas Eight Days a Week, I didn't really know what it was. You know, like it's got the Beatles in it, and I enjoyed it and all the rest. But to kind of tag the Hollywood Bowl, say, well, we'll use this as an excuse to get Hollywood Bowl out and and to sort of make, make, you know make a mess of it is not great. I think there's a potential Beatles live box set in the wings. Yeah, you know, with Shea Stadium and the Shea Stadium documentary and maybe some of the Budokan stuff. You know, because there's good video of that and you could get a good audio. DVD kind of mix audiovisual kind of box set for live stuff. But yeah, I thought it was kind of, I, I, I didn't like the fact that the, the album was, you know, the, the cover of the reissue is more in tribute to the documentary. It's a soundtrack. Mm, but, but it's not a but soundtrack. it's not a soundtrack. Yeah. That, that's the problem. And uh, yeah. Sorry, Apple on the phone yet? No. 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 To, no. <laughs> They're putting us on a, I don't think we'd be able to fly to London anymore if we keep complaining about Apple. Um, but that was August the 23rd. Uh, 1964, John Lennon said the Hollywood Bowl was marvellous. It was the one we all enjoyed most, I think, even though it wasn't the largest crowd because it seemed so important and everybody was saying things. We got on, it was a big stage and it was great. We could be heard in a place like the Hollywood Bowl, even though the crowd was wild. Good acoustics. So a fond, as you say, a very totemic gig. It's Hollywood, baby. It's Hollywood, baby. That's where you go to get all the big breaks. And we're going to take a big break right now. See you later. You're so good at this. <laughs> End of part one. Intermission. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. August the 23rd, 1964, was spent at the Hollywood Bowl. August the 23rd, 1965. They are back in LA and they are pre their second tilt at the Hollywood Bowl. But it's actually a day off, August the 23rd, 1965. But what day is it? It is a Monday. It is a Monday because you can't really party, you know, can't do a rock show on a Monday. It's no. not really a great gig night. That is not um, a gig night. And they've just played Portland and they arrive in California just before uh, dawn. And um, they are flying in a, a Constellation aircraft. Is that right? Yes. Why? Uh, because they have had to abandon their Lockheed Electra because the day before on the flight from Minneapolis to Portland, where they were playing a gig, an engine had caught fire. Uh, it's just what you want. Uh, yes. And did anything else portentous happen at the Portland gig? The best thing ever happened at the Portland gig. What? Alan Ginsberg was there. <sighs> and Alan Ginsberg was so moved by the gig yes. that he wrote a poem called, checks notes, Portland Coliseum. Wow. We should listen to that poem, shouldn't we? We should, if we could get somebody sufficiently emotive. Yes. Let's cut to producer Ada. A brown piano and diamond, white spotlight, Leviathan Auditorium, iron run wired hanging organs, Vox Black Battery, a single whistling sound of 10,000 children's larynx hissing, pierce the ears and following up the belly, bliss the moment arrived. Apparition, four brown English jacket Christ haired boys, goofed Ringo battling bright white drums, silent George, hair patient, soul horse, short black skulled Paul with the guitar. Lennon the captain, his mouth a triangular smile, all jumped together to end some tearful memory song, ancient two years. The million children, the thousand words, bounce in their seats, bash each other's sides, press legs together nervous, scream again and clap hands, become one animal in the New World Auditorium. Hands waving, myriad snakes of thought screech beyond hearing. While a line of police with folded arms stands, sentry to contain the red sweater ecstasy that rises upward to the wired roof. Wow, that was beautiful, wasn't it? That was something else. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, They go uh, to LA, they arrive on the morning of August the 23rd, and they are staying at 2850 Benedict Canyon Drive in Beverly Hills. Which was owned by Zsa Gabor. She must have been in full tilt Green Acres mode at this time. Was she not there? Well, maybe she was at work, but... Um, <laughs> I like the idea of Zsa Gabor <laughs> at work. Well, no, it was, maybe it was summertime and they were there having some down season. But um, this, is a, this is a portentous um, LA break. They have about five full days off in a house in LA. They are the kings of the world. They are the biggest stars that have ever been in the music business. So what to do? What do you do? Um, drugs? Yeah, I think so. Lots of lots of drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. Um, what exactly do they get up to? 
Well, it's not really a secret that they're in town for a start. No, it's not a secret that they're in town. So the fans find out where they are. They're surrounded by security guards and and, and police. So people are. This is the, this is what is what makes the uh, you know the drugs so weird. <laughs> that they, you know people are arriving. People with drugs are arriving and getting through the police uh, the police cordon. So this is a big house. George describes it in anthology. He said we stayed in a house that Hendrix later stayed in. Jaja was making a fortune for the Airbnb. <laughs> I like the fact that Jaja. It's like this <laughs> landlord. Yeah. Uh, it was a horseshoe-shaped house on a hill off Mulholland Drive. It had a little gatehouse, which Mal and Neil stayed in, decorated by Arabian-type things draped on the wall. So it's very hippy-dippy. You couldn't not take LSD, if, I think, if you were there. Yeah. And as you say, there's you know security guys outside the police. LAPD are around. Uh, you know, there are fans knocking around and they are going to live their best life, you know. And it's uh, John's third wedding anniversary. We can't forget that. Um, but the next day is uh, LSD day. LSD day. And uh, Eleanor Braun is there. Yeah. You think she was helping John celebrate his wedding anniversary? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Possibly. Well, we, we, Cynthia isn't around. No. No. Um, and Eleanor Braun, of course, is the star of Help, which had been the big summer movie. Help has just come out in previous weeks on UK and US uh, cinema screens. And yeah, John and Eleanor Braun are pals. They're pals. They're pals. Um, who else is at the party? Roger McGuinn or Jim McGuinn, depending on your state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Crosby, uh, both at this in the birds. At and, this time, uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, Daily Mirror newspaper journalist Don Short. Because if you're going to take LSD, <laughs> you want to have a journalist from the Daily Mirror. It's quite wild that, yeah, that they have like these kind of uh, internal confidants and they're allowed to, you know, be present for yeah. taking LSD. Um, and uh, so it's John and George are about to take their second uh, LSD experience. Yes, they no fo- dentists are present. The, following their famed first experience with the dentist and the driving the mini and the a lift on fire and all that kind of stuff. This is the first time that Ringo takes LSD. You, I, I would love to have been there to see Ringo taking LSD. I like, what, uh, yes. What would Ringo's inner dream state be? I wonder. Bongos, bongos, uh, a nice Ford Zephyr or something. Yeah, cowboys and Indians <laughs> and country music and yeah, yeah. mind expanding. Yeah. yeah, set of toms. And what's Paul doing? He's not partaking. What he's, a big he's, he's square. Kind of, he's kind of sitting in the corner while everybody else is dropping acid with Eleanor Braun and the birds. You know, I often come to Paul's defence, but... <laughs> um, you think it's indefensible that he didn't take LSD? Well, no, I'm not saying that because obviously... Yes, you are. It, it, it is... He, he gets this um, you know, bad rap for being a bit of a square... And here he is, and you could Being argue a square. He, this is quite square. I'm not advocating in any shape or form uh, taking LSD, kids, kids. But it does seem striking that uh, they're all taking it. And he's not taking it like that's and he talks about this being really significant peer pressure. Yeah, he's not that. I was going to say, if you're if, if you're if you're not taking it when David Crosby, you know, Roger McQuinn, John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo. He's, he's not going to buy it at peer pressure, Paul. Mm. He's going to wait until Tara Brown gives it to him. Yeah. That's what I find so weird. That he doesn't take it with them. That he doesn't take it with them. Mm. And he will take it with Tara Brown. And uh, if only there was a BBC Science podcast uh, that you could hear about that. Yeah. But anyway. Um, yeah. BBC Science, give the Beatles back to the Irish. Um, if, uh, apart from the drug connection, there's also kind of musical connections because, 
Roger Jim McGuinn is very interested in Ravi Shankar and drone sounds and Indian sounds and he's liaising with George about all of these kind of things. Yeah, you said that in a bit of a kind of droney way. That was very, <laughs> well, very well done. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. so Roger McGuinn is introducing uh, George, telling George about uh, Ravi Shankar and uh, you know, both David Crosby and Roger McGuinn are very into this this sort of eastern drone-based songwriting. Mm. Uh, this will come through in what the birds will do a little bit later, I think. Yeah, uh, Roger Green says, I showed George Harrison some Ravi Shankar sounds, which I'd heard because we shared the same record company on the guitar. I told him about Ravi Shankar and he said he had never heard Indian music before. Slight pinch of salt. Pinch of salt. You know, he's, he's they've just filmed Help. Mm, so. Exactly. And he's starting his North and, London connections for Indian music. Indian music all over the American soundtrack for Help, as you pointed out yes. uh, in our Help episode. It's all over India. Yeah, it's all over <laughs> India as well. <laughs> Um, but he might not, this might be where he kind of connects with Ravi Shankar for the first time. Could be. Yes, I think so. I mean, certainly I've heard David Crosby talk about this day as well. And, you know, David Crosby, perhaps not his memory, you know, not what it was for various <laughs> reasons. But he he, he uh, sort of confirms that this is a, a, a connection. Have you seen that David Crosby documentary, the recent yes. one? Yes. It's sad in a way. It is a bit, but, you know, can I just say... David Crosby is an asshole. <laughs> Finally, somebody says it. What? <laughs> what I like about David Crosby is he knows he's an asshole. Yeah. He knows that he has kind of alienated all of these people in his life. Well, that's what's kind and of sad about the documentary. He's just like, oh, I'm such an asshole. It's kind of yeah. basically the general theme that runs yeah, through Yeah, but I, I kind of think I, I, I do kind of admire him for that. And I have to say, of uh, all of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, he's the one I'd want to hang out with. There are periods in his life when I would not have wanted no, to hang out with him. No. But I can't ever imagine, I'm going to now start excluding people from ever coming on this podcast. I never, ever, ever want to be in a pub with Graham Nash. I think oh, that God, would be no. insufferable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil Young, I have nothing in common with Neil Young. Yeah. Stephen Stills, he's just, a, he's just mad. David Crosby, he's the man. Well, he's also, um, he's also had a very good, 70s I don't mean 1970s his 70s he has made some great music insanely good run of albums but they're obviously sociable types the birds they are and uh, they're quite good at hanging out with uh, with uh, the Beatles but there's another person hanging out on this day which is Peter Fonda good old Peter Fonda and he's a he's a sober and very level-headed chap he's a hip dude or not depending <laughs> on your take uh, and he's also enjoying the drugs he is. He is. And, uh, you know, Peter Fonda, Jane Fonda, they're part of the Fonda dynasty. Yep. Uh, they're movers and shakers and they're, I suppose, prototype beautiful people. Yeah. And yeah, so he's there uh, partaking. And of course, this is the incident which leads eventually to the song She Said, She Said. So Peter Fonda says, I told George there was nothing to be afraid of and all that he needed to do was relax. I said that I knew what it was like to be dead. What? 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 <laughs> because when I was 10 years old, I'd accidentally shot myself in the stomach and my heart stopped beating three times while I was on the operating table because I'd lost so much blood. If you were tripping on acid, I can understand that's not what you want to hear. Yeah. John recounts the same story. Peter Fonda came and he kept saying, I know what it's like to be dead. And we said, what? And he kept saying it. And we were saying, for Christ's sake, shut up. We don't care. We don't want to know. But he kept going on about it. And that's how I wrote, she said, she said. Um... Uh, Paul felt very out of it because we were a bit cruel. We're taking it and you're not. What's the other side of things that was going on? Is that, you know, they're they're taunting Paul, you know? What's what he's there for? 
George George says uh, Paul wouldn't have LSD. He didn't want it. So Ringo and Neil took it. Mal stayed straight in order to take care of everything. Good old Mal. Interestingly, Mm. they're not saying, Paul, if you're not taking it, could you kind of just come and keep an eye on everybody? Like that would have been cool if Paul said, I'm going to be the guy who guides you up and down and next time round you can do it for me. Yeah. But that's not it. Was he off writing a hit single or something? I don't know. I don't Uh, know. Um, So, you know, and George says, Peter Fonda was there. He kept saying, I know what it's like to be dead because I shot myself. He'd accidentally shot himself at some time and was showing us his bullet wound. He was very uncool. And I think (laughs) that's, Yeah. I'm prepared to take George's assessment. Peter Fonda, uncool. Yes. Um, well, there's nothing worse than a, a, a drug bore at a party, really. Um, later on that day, George continues, we were all tripping and they brought several starlets in, raises eyebrows up to the ceiling, um, and they set up a movie for us to watch in the house. Um, again, you know, there's an awful lot of boredom in the old days. Yeah. It's not like we were all sitting around on our phones. It's like, could somebody bring in a projector and a film and some starlets and we'll have a go what's going on? Um there are all these strangers sitting around with the makeup on and acid just cuts through all that bullshit. The movie was put on and of all things, it was a drive-in print of Cat Baloo and the drive-in print has the audience response already dubbed on it. So you're sitting in your cars and tell you when to laugh and when to not laugh. It was bizarre watching this on acid. George continues, I've always hated Lee Marvin and listening on acid to that other little dwarf bloke with a bowler hat on, I thought it was the biggest load of baloney shite I'd ever seen in my life. Too much to stand, but you just trip out. I know. I'd go there, I'd be gone somewhere, and then bang, I'd land back in my body. I'd look around and see that John had just done the same thing. It's a very striking memory from George. It is. He hates Lee Marvin. He hates Lee Marvin. And um, but, I put but, on this long list of hates. But Cat Baloo, you know who the star of Cat Baloo is? Jane Fonda. Ah, of course. Yeah, Jane mm. Fonda and Cat Baloo. So the Fondas, yeah, bringing everybody down. But that quote from George does make me think about how LSD must have affected George's, what would you say, he was not, he was, he, he, he kind of was always giving out about bullshit and kind yeah. of cutting to the chase and people being honest and clear and what LSD did for him when he perceived the world in that way. Yeah, he's the man. He could see through all the bullshit. He could see through all the bullshit. The interesting thing is we talked in our, you know, we mentioned in the revolver box set and somewhere, somewhere in a bonus episode, somewhere we'd be talking about she said, she said. Mm -hmm. And the fact that George and John worked on that song. Is it a coincidence that that song originated out of an experience, a sort of communal experience that George and John had without Paul. Had without Paul. Possibly. And then when it came to put the song together, yeah. um, is it too much to speculate that Paul was just a bit pissed off in the recording studio that, that, that they were kind of possibly referring back? Do you remember that day you wouldn't take? <laughs> you wouldn't take LSD? Do you remember that, Paul? You big wuss. You big wuss. <laughs> um, and that was, that was the argument that perhaps... I'm speculating. As if that day wasn't full enough, that night, um, uh, Alan Livingston, the head of Capital, throws a party and uh, Edward G. Robinson is there. Uh, Jack Benny, Groucho Marx, Dean Martin. Groucho Marx kind of goes on to have this friendship with the Hollywood vampires and... Uh, yes, Alice Cooper. Uh, well, yeah, and Alice Cooper, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so he's... It's interesting that Groucho is such a fun-loving party dude. It's interesting to me that these, these are all a generation or possibly two generations back yeah from the Beatles yeah uh, but John and George not having this and they leave early uh, so they leave 
Paul and Ringo, presumably yeah. hanging out with uh, Dean Martin. And uh, John and George go and attend a recording session by the birds. Where they're recording the times they are changing, which... It's not very kind of acidy. It's not a great. I don't like their version of Times They Are Changing. It's very kind of pedestrian, but uh, still, perhaps they're all just coming down from their oh. acid trip. But you could say the times were changing in some ways. I see what you did see there. predictably. I rather wish I hadn't, but. Uh, uh, but this is part of a series of days. Uh, as I said, they, they, you know, we're looking at August the 23rd. This is when they land in LA. August the 24th is LSD Day, but it's also the week when they visit Elvis Presley. Yeah. So it's uh, even before they do their Hollywood Bowl gigs on the 29th and 30th. So they go visit Elvis Presley on the 27th. So. Busy week. <laughs> it is a busy week. And this is the famously the, the one meeting that the Beatles have with Elvis where they arrive up in cars and he's sitting with his crew and he bonds with Paul over the base, apparently. And no one, no one can really remember what happened or what Priscilla was wearing or whether they jammed with Elvis or didn't jam with Elvis. <laughs> that's one of the funniest points of anthology yes. is that they all have a completely different memory of what happened or yeah. didn't happen on that day. It is a pity that we don't have... And again, no photographic evidence no. of the Beatles and Elvis together. Why? There's, there's very blurry photos of the day, but why? Nothing. Why was Mike McCartney not brought along as the official tour photographer? Uh, I guess he had um, his iron in many fires, Mike McCartney. He wasn't just a photographer. Maybe no. he didn't want to, but no. it would have been great. Like when you think about the photographers, Mike McCartney and Astrid, who were surrounding the Beatles in the early days and how much they yes. managed to capture. Yeah. And then there's still stuff in their peak fame years that remains uncaptured. And yeah. the Beatles and Elvis is certainly one um, meeting that should have been documented somewhere. Absolutely. But I think there was a bit of paranoia on Elvis's part that he didn't want to be ceding anything to the Beatles. Probably. Or it kind of yeah. had to happen under the radar in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that's August the 23rd and the subsequent week, 1965, another pivotal week. Um, and as we are tracking through the 1960s, we are going to get to 1966, but we are going to leave that for the next time. In 1966, this is a Tuesday and the Beatles play Shea Stadium. It all happens on August the 23rd, doesn't it? On that bombshell, that cliffhanger. <laughs> we're going to have to wait for Shea Stadium until next week. Yeah, I know. And, well, you know, what, what, what were they going to say? Anyway, we remain available in all the usual places. We're available on Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, the website www.nothingisrealpod.com and all the other social media uh, realms where we exist. There are bonus episodes on Acast Plus and we thank all our Acast Plus supporters um, for joining us over there. And uh, for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockroft. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. That's passionate enough, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Please, it's just fine. It's fine. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAS Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.